Right on radio. Right on radio. To understand how the world got into this mess, we must now travel back in time to the very founding of the American Republic. Prior to the Revolutionary War, the American colonies had grown quite prosperous with full employment in a very short period of time. When King George III asked Benjamin Franklin the secret of the success, Franklin responded, It is because in the colonies we issue our own paper money, we call it colonial script and we issue only enough to move all goods freely from the producers to the consumers. And as we create our money, we control the purchasing power of money and have no interest to pay. But the king was jealous of the success of the colonies and their paper-based fiat money system, which was not backed by precious metals. Life in Georgian England was an entirely different story. High taxation meant the prisons were filled with debtors and the streets were filled with unemployed beggars with little hope of escape. The taxes paid to the king barely covered the interest payment on the debts he owed to Mayor Amschel Rothschild. With the wealthy in England overtaxed, King George turned to the colonists by requiring all taxes to be paid in gold coins rather than colonial script. Since the colonists had very little gold, unemployment and cries for war soon surfaced. Benjamin Franklin later said that this was the true cause of the war, not the tax on tea or the Stamp Act as taught in the history books over and over again. Violent opposition soon broke out, forcing King George to send English soldiers to enforce the new taxes. When these troops refused to fire on British citizens, the king agreed to let Mayor Rothschild purchase German Hessian troops as mercenary fighters dressed in British uniforms to collect his debt for him. When it became clear these Hessian troops could not successfully defeat the Continental Army, King George finally relinquished and said, We may have lost the colony, but we will get her back. To bring the colonists to their knees, Mayor Rothschild proposed a novel idea. He would loan money to the Continental Army through British Rothschild agents in France in order to control them. From that point on, England stopped trying to divide and conquer America through force, but instead chose to retake her colonies through the stealth of divide and control. To implement this new policy, he recruited a network of British spies still loyal to the Crown to infiltrate and guide the new Republic's government into the hands of British bankers. In 1788, before the United States even existed, British war loans were now coming due. Because the federal government had no significant financial resources to pay these loans, they declared bankruptcy and placed the debt on the states instead of the people. To make the war debt pending against the people, in 1790 Congress passed an act making a provision for the payment of the debt of the United States. This act abolished states of the Republic and created federal districts in their place. A portion of the war debts was then placed in each one of these districts. Soon after, all the states and citizens were reorganized as corporations, and as a corporation you are not subject to the Bill of Rights. This may explain why you feel like you have no rights under the Constitution. It's because you don't, you are not subject to it. Even though the colonists had removed British troops from their lands, they were now at the mercy of British bankers. 
After defaulting on their war debts, one of President Washington's first acts in power was to declare a financial emergency. Desperate for funds, the United States allowed the creation of a private central bank, controlled by the Bank of England and the Rothschild family, by pledging the assets and securities of the United States as collateral. Despite the protests of the Democrats and Republicans, led by Thomas Jefferson, Washington recruited the aid of Alexander Hamilton, who was Secretary of Treasury and a Rothschild agent, to draft a proposal, which in 1791 became the Bank of the United States. Just like the Bank of England, which was also privately owned, the Bank of the United States was named in such a way to conceal its true ownership. This bank was given a 20-year charter and capitalized with $10 million, 80% of which was owned by foreign bankers. Using fractional reserve banking, the bank was authorized to loan out twice as much money as it had in reserves, or $20 million. This made a profitable enterprise for the bankers, as they could collect interest on an extra $10 million that was simply manufactured out of thin air. By 1796, the national debt of the United States government had grown to $6.2 million, forcing the government to sell most of its own shares in the Bank of the United States. By 1802, the government owned no stock in its own bank. With the outbreak of the Napoleonic Wars in Europe in 1803, the relationship between the United States and Great Britain had begun to deteriorate. Britain had imposed a blockade on all neutral countries, including the United States. During this time, Britain was taking American sailors as hostages from their ships to serve in the British Navy. In response to this increasing infiltration of troublemakers and a host of British spies within the United States, Congress passed an amendment which prevented anyone who held titles of nobility or connections to the Crown of England from holding public office, such as Esquire Attorney, Doctor, and Clergyman. These titles were authorized under the Crown of England for English citizens and thus, these holders are foreign agents of the Crown. The Titles of Nobility Amendment, also known as the 13th Amendment, was approved by Congress in the House of Representatives in 1810. It was ratified by all the necessary states into law on March 12, 1819. It reads as follows. If any citizen of the United States shall accept, claim, receive, or retain any title, nobility, or honor, or shall, without the consent of Congress, accept and retain any present, pension, office, or emolument of any kind, whatever, from any emperor, king, prince, or foreign power, such person shall cease to be a citizen of the United States, and shall be incapable of holding any office of trust or profit under them, or either of them. Titles and Nobility Amendment, 1810. After the passage of the Titles and Nobility Amendment, Congress went one step further by severing British control over the financial system when they refused to renew the first United States Bank Charter, which expired on February 20, 1811. Nathan Mayer Rothschild was quoted as saying, Either the application for the renewal of the Charter is granted, or the United States will find itself involved in a most disastrous war. When it became apparent the United States would not go along with the banker's schemes, Rothschild responded, Teach those impudent Americans a lesson. Bring them back to colonial status. In retaliation for refusing to do business on their terms, European investors withdrew $7 million in specie or coin money from the U.S. economy, resulting in an economic recession and the eventual outbreak of the War of 1812. 
the causes of the war of 1812 were triggered by England's loss of control over the United States monetary system. And even more worrisome, the Titles of Nobility Amendment prevented British agents from meddling in the affairs of the new republic's government, so England ordered their soldiers to burn down Washington, D.C. With the White House and the Library of Congress now in flames, evidence of the original Title of Nobility Amendment was destroyed. The British crowd knew the American people would no longer tolerate British rule again, so they returned the Republic back to the American people with one exception. The 13th Amendment was to be removed from the Constitution. This amendment began disappearing from text in 1832 and by 1876 was removed from all official state publications thanks to extreme bribery from the Rothschild Banking Syndicate. Proof that the 13th Amendment was ratified was found in 1983 by archive researcher David Dodge and Tom Dunn in a rural Maine library. After the War of 1812, English bankers, such as the Rothschilds, sought to recapture the American economy. They knew if they could control the money supply, they would not care who created the laws. Thanks to all the new war debt which needed financing, they got their wish when President James Madison granted a charter to the Second National Bank in 1816. But this bank was laced with political corruption, as they would often purchase politicians by funding their election campaigns. The newly elected President Andrew Jackson responded to their mischief with these famous words. You are a den of vipers and thieves. I intend to rot you out, and by the eternal God, I will rot you out. After a failed assassination attempt, he told his close friend and the future president, Martin Van Buren, the bank is trying to kill me, but I will kill it. In 1832, Andrew Jackson vetoed a renewal of the bank's charter on the grounds the bank was unconstitutional. He successfully paid off the national debt for the first time in the nation's history with a surplus of $5,000. After the bank charter had expired, the books were opened up and Congress was shocked to learn that every single stockholder was a British citizen. On January 30, 1835, President Andrew Jackson attended a congressional funeral in the Capitol building. As he exited, Richard Lawrence fired a pistol at Jackson, but the percussion cap exploded and the bullet would not discharge. So an enraged Jackson strikes his cane at the attacker, who then fires another bullet, which also failed to discharge. Jackson later claims the Rothschilds were responsible for this incident. In 1857, the Illuminati met in London to decide America's fate. They knew if they could incite an expensive and costly war, then the United States would be forced to charter a central bank. But because Canada and Mexico were too weak to fight a war, and England, France, and Russia were too far away, they decided to ferment a civil war between the North and the South. The North was become a British colony annexed to Canada under the control of Lionel Rothschild, and the South with its valuable cotton industry was to be given to Napoleon III of France to be controlled by James Rothschild. By the 1860s, slavery was gradually becoming obsolete thanks to increased education and changing of attitudes. But the Illuminati capitalized on the racial tensions in order to divide and control America through a civil war. Albert Pike, the head of both the Masonic and Illuminati order, recruited the help of the Knights of the Golden Circle, which was formed in 1854 by George Bickley. Their members included a who's who of notable people, including President of the Confederate States, Jefferson Davis, John Wilkes Booth, and the infamous bank robber, Jesse James, whose operations helped fund the Civil War. 
Later, in 1867, the Knights of the Golden Circle spun off the Ku Klux Klan. In 1861, Lincoln approached Rothschild-controlled banks in New York to raise money for the Civil War. After they quoted him an insane user's interest rate of 24 to 36 percent, Lincoln ordered the U.S. Treasury to print the money debt-free. In 1972, the U.S. Treasury Department computed that this move saved the government nearly $4 billion of interest. These debt-free notes, backed by precious metals, were known as greenbacks due to the green-colored ink printed on the back. During the course of the war, and later during the Reconstruction era that soon followed, over $449 million were issued, bringing both value and stability to the war-torn republic and to help restore constitutional control over the money supply. In response to the greenbacks, Lincoln once said, We gave the people of this republic the greatest blessing they ever had, their own paper money to pay their own debts. The Civil War created many challenges for Lincoln, but some of his mistakes are still haunting us to this day. In particular, the early foundation of a shadow government and the true meaning of a 14th Amendment citizen. The concept of a shadow government within the United States first began on March 27, 1861, when the southern states walked out of Congress. Because there were not enough members present in Congress to conduct a legislative session under the rules of parliamentary law, the only lawful authority they had was to vote on a time to reconvene for a new session. But instead of agreeing on a new time to reassemble, they chose to abandon Congress altogether. This created a constitutional crisis, which placed Congress in Sinai, which literally means without day. In Sinai, Congress was no longer a lawful body, and therefore they could no longer declare war under a constitutional authority. In addition, the Constitution of the United States had ceased to exist when parties from the southern states had ceded from the Union and because northern states had declared their own state legislatures in Sinai. In response to the Constitutional Crisis, on April 15, 1861, Lincoln signed an executive order known as Executive Proclamation 1, which declared a national emergency and placed the federal territories under martial law to be ruled by executive powers. Because the federal government within the District of Columbia did not have any jurisdiction in the state territories, on April 24, 1863, he commissioned General Orders No. 100, also known as the Libra Code, to extend the laws of the District of Columbia beyond the boundaries of Washington, D.C. into the several states, placing all Americans under military occupation of the United States government. After the conclusion of the Civil War, Lincoln intended to end the Libra Code and return to constitutional law, but his plans were cut short when he was assassinated. As a result, martial law under a shadow government continues to this day. Not only did the Libra Code enable Lincoln to sidestep the constitutional crisis, but it also allowed him to navigate around Rothschild-controlled interests. In 1865, the war was now going badly for Lincoln, when he delivered a message to Congress saying, I have two great enemies, the southern army in front of me and the financial institutions in the rear. Of the two, the one in my rear is my greatest foe. In 1862, the Rothschilds' plans for the invasion of the United States was on schedule when England had stationed 8,000 troops in Canada and France had stationed 30,000 troops in Mexico. To deal with the Rothschild problem, Lincoln had contacted his friend, 
Tsar Alexander II of Russia for military assistance because he too was opposed to a Rothschild-controlled central bank in his country and because Lincoln showed goodwill by emancipating the slaves. To ensure military victory for the Union forces, Tsar Alexander parked his naval fleet in the New York and San Francisco harbor to block any invasion attempts by the English or French. Because of their help, and because the Tsars blocked the creation of a Zionist one-world government at the Congress of Vienna in 1815, the Rothschilds had sealed their fate. When 60 years later, the Tsar dynasty had met their own downfall at the hands of Rothschild agents during the Bolshevik Revolution. By opposing the Rothschilds and by printing the greenbacks, English bankers had signed President Lincoln's death warrant, so they hired John Wilkes Booth to assassinate Lincoln. Sadly, a local vagrant was found nearby in a hay barn and was innocently charged and sentenced for the crime. After escaping from his captors, John Wilkes Booth lived out the remainder of his life in comfortable surroundings in England. In 1868, the 14th Amendment was ratified, ending slavery by giving all Americans citizenship. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the states wherein they reside. United States Code Annotated Amendment 14. However, what the public was not told, that while under the Libra Code, a 14th Amendment citizen can only be found within the jurisdiction of the United States, that is, all government employees, all those who live in territories occupied by the federal government, such as Washington, D.C., and the former slaves. The rest of the population was not subject to the 14th Amendment, and thus could still claim jurisdiction under the original Constitution. In addition to that, after the conclusion of the Civil War, the federal government was now occupying the southern states, placing these captured citizens under the jurisdiction of the Libra Code. The southern states had to agree to ratify this amendment in order for them to be granted their freedom from federal rule. Thus, instead of ending slavery, the 14th Amendment held all southerners captive as slaves in the plantation known as the United States of America. Just like how all citizens were turned into corporations in 1790 to subject them to the Revolutionary War debts, 14th Amendment citizens were created to be franchisees subject to the corporation known as the United States Incorporated. And like all corporate brands, you do not have any Constitutional Bill of Rights protections. Proof of such can be found in the all-caps version of your name, which signifies a corporate entity. After the Civil War, the United States defaulted on its war debt. During the bankruptcy proceedings, cunning lawyers in league with international bankers found a loophole within Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17 of the United States Constitution, which allowed the creation of a duplicate entity known as the Corporation of the United States of America to replace the now bankrupt and defunct Republic of the United States of America. This occurred with the passage of the District of Columbia Organic Act of 1871, which incorporated the area of the District of Columbia into a private foreign corporation chartered in the city of London known as the United States Incorporated. This corporation designated Congress as the Board of Directors to continue the business needs of the government under martial law. Thanks to the Libra Code, federal jurisdiction under the Organic Act was expanded to include not only all captured citizens in the southern states, but all Americans in all states. Thus, America had lost her sovereignty under the yoke of the Crown of England and the international bankers.
During the same time, the Corporation of the United States adopted its own constitution, which was identical to the original national constitution. To fool the people, one word was changed from its original form, the Constitution for the United States of America, to its present day all capitalized form, which signifies a corporate entity, the Constitution of the United States of America. Incidentally, the Titles of Nobility Amendment was removed from this new constitution. With the Illuminati in full control over the United States, they now sought to rule the world. After the death of Adam Weishaupt in 1830, Giuseppe Mazzini was selected to head the Illuminati. In 1871, the mantle of power was passed on again to the American General Albert Pike as its new director. Pike became fascinated with the idea of a one-world government and eventually constructed the Illuminati's blueprint of world domination. His plans called for the financing of three world wars in the 20th century. The first war would bring about an atheist communist state from the ashes of Tsarist Russia. The second war would bring about a Jewish holocaust under a fascist government to ferment support of a Zionist state of Israel. The third war would manipulate the differences of Christians and Muslims for their own annihilation. Then finally, political Zionism would come out as victors of all. These three world wars would require enormous funding. Since most of the royalty in Europe was already deeply in debt thanks to the numerous wars and conflicts created by the Rothschild banking dynasty, the only place left that could possibly pay for such ambitious plans was the now prosperous American Republic. After the Civil War, the United States went through a great industrial expansion. The new industries of oil, steel, textile, and railroad all needed generous financing, which the Rothschild family was more than eager to provide. To access these markets, the Rothschilds sent their agent, Jacob Schiff, to infiltrate the New York banking scene, which was controlled by J.P. Morgan. By the turn of the century, the Rothschilds had fully entrenched themselves into the tight fraternity of Wall Street banks, such as Goldman Sachs and Lehman Brothers. They now sought their most prized possession, full control over the American monetary system. With help from Jacob Schiff and J.P. Morgan, the Rothschilds formed a scheme which would seduce Congress into relinquishing control over the money supply. This occurred with the Panic of 1907, when a liquidity crisis caused many banks and businesses to fail all across the United States. The meltdown began when J.P. Morgan published rumors that the Knickerbocker Trust Company of New York was insolvent. With a bank run on hand, they were forced to call in their loans, creating a chain reaction which would threaten to implode the entire banking system. The failures continued until J.P. Morgan & Company provided a generous loan to the insolvent banks. But J.P. Morgan was not trying to save the American banking system, but rather, he used the crisis to destroy his competition by choosing which banks he would bail out. But the biggest casualty of the economic fallout was the looming bankruptcy of the Corporation of the United States, which had no means to pay back their loans which were due in 1912. In anticipation of this bankruptcy, representatives from the world's most powerful families met in November 1910 at a secret meeting at the Jekyll Island Club Resort in Georgia to discuss the foreclosure of the Corporation of the United States and to brainstorm solutions which would prevent future liquidity crises such as occurred during the Panic of 1907. Those in attendance included Senator Nelson Aldrich, 
Paul Warburg, representatives from J.P. Morgan and Company, and Jacob Schiff, representing the Rothschild family. They proposed a 20-year extension on the national debt if the United States would agree to charter a privately owned central bank, which would serve as a bank of last resort by lending money to other insolvent banks in order to prevent future bank runs. A week later, they emerged with their plans to create what is known as the Federal Reserve System. Because the current President Taft would never agree to sign away the American monetary system to a cabal of international bankers, they waited until they got their man, the progressive Woodrow Wilson, into power. In return for the bankers' generous campaign contributions, Woodrow Wilson reluctantly promised the bankers he would sign the Federal Reserve Act if he was elected into office. Many powerful forces were opposed to the creation of a privately controlled central bank. To neutralize this threat, J.P. Morgan invited the major opponents of the Federal Reserve Act on board the maiden voyage of the newly built Titanic luxury steamliner built by the White Star Line, owned by J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan ordered the captain to steer his ship into an iceberg, and under gunpoint prevented the men from escaping onto the lifeboats, killing many of his enemies in one large swoop. When word of this got back to Woodrow Wilson, he commented, There exists this power in the world, so subtle, so organized, so watchful, that we dare not speak above a whisper when we speak in condimentation of it. At the beginning of 1913, the United States had defaulted on its debt. After being denied a new line of credit, the now President Woodrow Wilson faced a constitutional crisis. With no other sources of funding, he went along with the banker's schemes engineered at the Jekyll Island Resort. To avoid any opposition, Senator Nelson Aldrich quickly pushed the Federal Reserve Act through both houses of Congress. On December 23, 1913, while most of Congress was away on Christmas vacation, a quorum call was issued. A few selected congressional traders voted by voice to avoid public record and pass the Federal Reserve Act, which President Wilson signed into law. Wilson later admitted with remorse when referring to the Fed, I have unwittingly ruined my country. This act gave away the keys of the printing presses at the U.S. Treasury to a foreign corporation chartered under the Crown of England known as the Federal Reserve Bank. The Federal Reserve was created by Congress in 1913 and it was entrusted with the power granted originally to the Congress by the U.S. Constitution to coin money and regulate the value thereof. The Federal Reserve Bank advertises itself as a non-profit corporation that operates as if it's another branch of the government. However, its board members are unelected and their meetings are conducted behind the closed doors away from public scrutiny. The board of directors of the Federal Reserve System is chosen by the president from a list prepared by the bankers themselves. It's important that whomever I pick uh, is viewed as an independent person from politics. All this secrecy becomes very suspicious considering how the Federal Reserve monitors and controls trillions of dollars within the world's banking system. After the federal government lost its ability to issue its own money, the national debt soon soared to astronomical heights because now the government had to pay the Federal Reserve interest on all its currency printed to circulation. But this interest on the national debt could never be repaid, as the Federal Reserve required all debts to be repaid with gold, which the government did not have. And even worse, the interest portion of the national debt was not issued into the money supply, 
In other words, more and more debt would have to be issued to continue servicing the growing interest payments on all loans. In order to cover this interest payment, Congress was forced to pass the income tax legislation, which became law in 1913 with the ratification of the 16th Amendment, also known as the Income Tax Amendment. Initially, they levied a 1% voluntary tax on all incomes over 3000 and a progressive surtax on all incomes over 20000 but this would soon increase with the outbreak of World War I and World War II. Income tax allowed the Federal Reserve System to confiscate the earnings of the common man, but the industrialists and financiers were exempted from paying any income tax because they could afford to hide their assets in tax-free foundations which they claimed were devoted to philanthropy. Examples of such include the Rockefeller Foundation, the Mellon Foundation, and the Carnegie Endowment. The main purpose of the income tax is not to raise revenue, but to redistribute wealth and to control society. Technically, the 16th Amendment was not ratified by the necessary states as it violates the constitutional clause of no direct taxes. Despite this, Congress went ahead and taxed the people anyway. The government was able to do this because under their corporate charter, Congress was operating as the board of directors and therefore they had the authority to enter this amendment as ratified. But remember, this amendment has nothing to do with the original United States Constitution, which was replaced back in 1871 with the corporate constitution. It's actually very simple. Congress tried to enact an income tax in 1894. The Supreme Court said that's unconstitutional. When the Supreme Court says something is unconstitutional, it's unconstitutional. They tried again in 1913, and the Supreme Court said the 16th Amendment conferred no new power of taxation. So, if they didn't have it then, and they didn't get it, they don't have it. There is no constitutional basis for a tax on the wages of Americans living and working in the 50 states of the Union. Period. End of argument. In 1933, the United States once again declared bankruptcy. To make all citizens subject to repayment on the national debt, the bankers chartered a Delaware corporation known as the Bureau of Internal Revenue. But this corporation was illegally masquerading as part of the government, placing them under constant threat of lawsuit. To escape this litigation, they moved their jurisdiction outside of the United States to Puerto Rico. This occurred in 1953 when they changed their name to the Internal Revenue Service, or IRS, incorporated as a Puerto Rican trust within the division of the Department of the Treasury of the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico. Further proof can be found within the United States Code, which lists the IRS as Trust Fund Number 62, the Puerto Rico Special Fund Internal Revenue. This was done to divert all income tax payments to the International Monetary Fund owned by the various central banks of Europe and North America, which in turn are owned by the Crown of England. There is a substantial, conclusive body of evidence that proves that our income tax system represents the most pernicious form of tyranny. It is the greatest hoax ever perpetrated by government against the working men and women of America. I can eliminate all income taxes tomorrow and have more than enough money to fund the government by using some other guy's bright idea. We tax the Federal Reserve at point triple zero six, doubles our money until we decide to put them out of business permanently, because we certainly should not have central banks. 
The evidence proving income tax is paid to the United Kingdom is found deep within the IRS individual master file, which contains every transaction and financial record gathered by IRS officials throughout your lifetime. One of these codes determines what kind of tax you are paying. After looking this code up within the IRS 6209 manual, you find that they have incorrectly classified all Americans as domiciled corporations in either Guam, the Virgin Islands, or Puerto Rico. Furthermore, all taxpayers who filled out a 1040 form are subject to a tax for doing commerce with the United Kingdom under a treaty with the United States. There is no law, there is no law that requires the average American worker in the private sector to pay a direct unapportioned tax on their labor and compensation for services. There is no law. As you follow the money trail, you find that the taxes collected on the 1040 form is then sent to the Crown of England as a tribute payment. The Crown of England is a sovereign corporation located within the 677 acres of the city, found within the heart of Greater London. This tiny strip of land contains the world's most powerful banking houses, such as the Bank of England and Lloyd's of London, owned by the House of Rothschild. It is these bankers and their counterpart, the Temple Bar Attorneys, that constitute the power base known simply as the Crown. Even though the Queen of England is a member of this club, she is not its corporate head. That job was given to the Pontiff of Rome. The Pope was given control over the monarchy with the signing of the Treaty of 1213 between King John and Pope Innocent III, which forever pledged England as a vassal state of the Holy Roman Empire. In 1297, that treaty was used as a precedent to incorporate the city as an independent city-state controlled by the Vatican, which would govern England without directly relying on the monarchy. Just like how the Corporation of the United States was subject to the Crown of England, so too were the subjects of the British Empire, enslaved with debt by the financial division of the Vatican, headquartered within the city of London. Today, this small clique of bankers have full authority over the affairs of Parliament, and this has been the case since 1694, when Pope Innocent XI hired William of Orange to dispose the Stuart Kings and charter the Bank of England. Located within the Crown of England is the original Federal Reserve Charter, which according to the Farmer Claims Legal Team, allocates that 67% of the income tax collected by the IRS was be divided to the Crown of England. Another 23% was be paid as a dividend to the 300 shareholders of the Federal Reserve Bank, and the last 10% was be paid to the employees of the IRS to keep them quiet about this sweet deal. Since 1913, none of the income tax collected by the IRS has gone to the federal government. The federal government is funded totally through black budget sources such as drug trafficking and off-budget accounting on the Comprehensive Annual Financial Report. The Comprehensive Annual Financial Report, also known as the CAFR, was based on techniques first used by the Mafia to hide their assets. In 1946, the government adopted the same methods when a private organization known as the Government Finance Officers Association created a policy which changed the government from a pay-as-you-go structure into a for-profit structure used by corporate America. Soon after, governments began using a financial statement which allowed them to create multiple profit centers and investment accounts and to do it in such a way that the public would never figure out. Over time, the government began to make so much money that they overtook the Mafia as the biggest game in town. In 1977, 
GOFO spun off another private organization known as the Government Accounting Standards Board, which promoted the lucrative benefits of a standardized financial statement. Soon all local, county, and state governments jumped on board and began producing their own version of either a comprehensive annual financial report or an annual financial report, or on the federal level, a consolidated financial statement. As of 2005, there are over 148,000 individual government financial statements in the United States, with a combined local, state, and federal level investment of at least $110 trillion. With so much money, one must ask why the government has any debt at all. To answer this is complex, because the government's debts are financed indirectly through their own investment funds. This was done to subject the people to the repayment of the debt, while at the same time the government could steal all the wealth of the people. The CAFR allows the government to hide their assets through the use of two sets of accounting books. One is the budget report, which is presented to the public as the actual budget. The only income that must be reported in government budget reports are taxes, fines, and fees. But this is only a small image within the entire financial picture. The other set of accounting books are known as the financial statements of the CAFR, the AFR, and on a federal level, the CFS. These show a more complete financial condition of the government, which includes all the income generated from government liquid investment funds, bond financing accounts, and corporate stock portfolios. Some examples of these investment centers include self-insurance, enterprise operations, self-debt funding accounts, hundreds if not thousands of specialty funding accounts, creatively enacted advanced forward liability accounts, federally funded program accounts, pensions, real estate venture projects, and property seized by the state. When you look into these funds, you find governments have actually been stashing away large surpluses of money from the general public. These funds have been kept away from the taxpayer while taxes are raised and citizens are told to expect fewer services. None of these revenue centers report their income in the general budget, allowing the government to hide how much money they are truly making within each accounting cycle. And it serves to create a void of comprehension, keeping the public in the dark of what is truly going on. If a private sector business was to adopt these same accounting practices, they would qualify as a criminal enterprise under the RICO statutes for extortion. But the government wiggled around this by passing laws designed to elude all consequences of their theft. Which is another part of the problem. Today, over 70-80% of all elected officials are associated with the massive attorney network complex which has since taken over the three branches of the government. These attorneys make laws which give them power to sue anyone who dares to attempt to access these funds. As long as people continue voting these attorneys into office, they will continue stealing these massive profits for themselves. When analyzing the total income generated on a composite level of local, state, and federal government financial statements, the non-disclosed revenues now account for 66% of all the government's income, while the other 33% is still derived from tax revenues. If the government's administrative duties were modified slightly through the creation of tax retirement funds, then the profits generated could easily run all governments without any further need of taxation and still have enough money left over to pay a dividend check to every American. TRF funds would be set up like a pension fund, but with the goal of retiring all forms of taxation. The majority of its investments would be made to local businesses, stimulating their own local economy instead of Wall Street and offshore banks. 
After auditing and applying surpluses found within the CAFR, most governments have half the funds needed to create a tax retirement fund. The other half could be raised over a five-year period using income generated in various CAFR revenue centers. Eventually, the funds will grow large enough to phase out all taxation, creating thriving local economies and even greater sums of money for all people. According to the research uncovered by concerned activist Walter Buren, the editor of CAFR1.com website, in 1998, the federal government collected $1.8 trillion in taxes and all local and state governments collected $1.6 trillion with total tax revenues of $3.5 trillion. The revenue centers found within the CAFR brought in another $5.1 trillion with a grand total of $8.5 trillion of gross income for the government. And according to the World Bank, the United States economy generated only $8.7 trillion for that same year. But this statistic is misleading, because the income generated by the government is excluded from the GDP to hide the fact that the government makes more revenue than the general population. If this data was revised to show all private and public sector income, then the total GDP in 1998 would have been $17.2 trillion, with the government accounting for 49% of all economic activity within the United States. By the year 2009, this number has since grown to nearly 70% of all economic activity, leaving little doubt the United States is now a command economy. But even more alarming, these non-disclosed government investment funds have become so massive they now control 60-70% to 70 of all American corporations. Whenever you hear about these so-called institutional investors mentioned in the news media, they are actually referring to a composite of government pension funds and domestic and international specialty funds, which in the year of 2000 accounted for an 82% stock ownership of Microsoft, 61% of Disney, 58% of AOL Time Warner, and 72% of Exxon. But of course, the government-owned news media would never dare report these numbers to the American people. With such a large sum of money at their disposal, the stock and bond markets are regularly manipulated, making or breaking any corporation which does not follow the New World Order agenda. No wonder we feel like the stock market is rigged, because it is. This also explains why the government-owned news media would not report anything critical of the government, and also why the government has no intentions of reforming the profitable government-owned healthcare industry. But even more frightening, by using the power of proxy vote, the government can force corporate America to do its own bidding. This explains why we have so much offshoring. Back in the 1960s, most of the businesses owned within the CAFR were primarily restricted to American-owned corporations. But in 1978, the government sidestepped this rule by creating international investment pools which began taking over companies overseas in order to make huge profits from cheaper labor and in turn, putting Americans out of work. Sadly, corporate leaders are powerless to do anything about this lest their companies would be destroyed, or even worse things could happen to them, such as the government firing the entire board of directors and replacing them with their own cronies. Offshoring has allowed these same companies to hide their income from the IRS by setting up domicile corporations throughout the world like in the Cayman Islands. Today, the largest American corporations, such as found within the Fortune 500, pay a paltry sum of 0.02% to 1.5% income tax after deductions. Yet the average American is forced to shell out to their slave masters an average of 27% of their personal income tax returns. 
In addition to offshoring American jobs, the federal and local government has been implicated in using its derivatives to manipulate financial markets throughout the world. According to a March 2008 U.S. Treasury audit of his bank derivative holdings, the government currently holds over $180 trillion of derivatives, most of which is held within the five largest American banks. These credit swap derivatives are used to manipulate all commodity prices, including the short and long-term bond yields, the prices of crude oil, precious metals, and stock certificates, creating easy money for the government, but consequently leading to a speculative global bubble market and its eventual demise which seems to be what they want, to drain all the people's assets in a covert and hidden way, while inevitably enhancing the profits of their own investment funds. To correct this problem, a full audit of the government's financial statements must be disclosed to the public. But as long as attorneys continue to monopolize the functions of the government, it is doubtful this will ever happen. While the theft of the people's money continue to impoverish the masses, the lucrative printing presses at the Federal Reserve Bank managed to enslave them, bringing the New World Order one step closer to reality. Through the magic of fractional reserve banking, the Federal Reserve System can create or destroy money. But because the interest portion of the bank's loaning activity is not issued into the money supply, more and more loans are necessary to continue financing debt and to continue injecting money into the economy, creating a debt bubble that can only grow larger and larger. During this time, physical assets are exchanged as collateral for intangible fiat money, until the day the debt bubble bursts, allowing the bankers to foreclose on the entire world. The Founding Fathers were well aware of this danger, which is why they outlawed the use of privately issued fiat money as according to Article 1, Section 10 of the Constitution, which mandates debts can only be repaid with gold and silver. In 1971, Nixon illegally stripped all Federal Reserve notes from the gold standard, and ever since, Americans have been using unlawful money. Without the backing of precious metals, these notes would not even be considered money, as money has intrinsic value. Federal Reserve notes are technically certificates of debt, as they can only be issued into the money supply through the loaning activity of fractional reserve banking. The bottom line here is that central banking is an evil cancer. These people are selling us credit they don't have so they can take profits they don't deserve out of our pockets. That's nuts. The United States government is constitutionally chartered to print money on the good faith and credit of all of us and not pay interest. Why are we being such fools? Well, unfortunately, if you fight them, you get assassinated. Lincoln and Kennedy were both about to print money and not borrow from the banks. I can't connect those two dots, but I can tell you they're side by side. When you take a closer look at a dollar bill, you see the words, this note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. But one needs to ask themselves to whom this debt is owed to. The bankers were able to get around the Constitution's restriction of fiat money by using a clause within Section 16 of the Federal Reserve Act, which stipulates that Federal Reserve notes can only be used by Federal Reserve banks. Isn't it amazing that the bankers consider all people who use their privately issued credit to be Federal Reserve banks? And with the Federal Reserve's open checkbook, stock markets can be manipulated, creating even greater sums of money for the bankers. And even worse, 
They now had the finances to bankroll World War I and World War II, which helped serve as a diversion to keep the public unaware of what was really going on. After the Federal Reserve's takeover of the American monetary system, the bankers could print as much fiat money as they wanted to buy out anyone and anything which opposed the New World Order agenda. Soon, all the major media conglomerates began to fall under their control. According to a report given to Congress in 1917 by Congressman Oscar Calloway, in 1915, J.P. Morgan met with 12 high-ranking news managers to determine the most influential newspapers in America and to figure out how many of them it would take to generally control the policy of the daily press within the United States. After agreeing it would require the control of 25 of the greatest newspapers, J.P. Morgan, the Rothschild family, and J.D. Rockefeller began buying up these papers and replacing them with new editors who would spread their ideas of a one-world government in a post-war world. To help define this new policy, the now elderly Jacob Schiff recruited J.P. Morgan's personal attorney, Elihu Root, and President Wilson's closest advisor, Edward House, to create a front group which in 1921 would become the Council of Foreign Relations. Their ranks soon swelled to over a thousand members, representing the heads of virtually every industrial empire in America. Soon, other groups similar to the CFR were founded in other nations, such as the Bilderberg Group and the Trilateral Commission. Their inner circle of members now conspired to purchase any asset which was not owned by them, and with the Federal Reserve's power of printing, loaning, or withdrawing money, they were able to profit from the artificially created boom and bust cycles caused by the Fed's manipulation of the interest rates, which resulted in either inflation or deflation of the money supply. This is why the stock market crashed in 1929. In the Roaring 20s, the Fed loaned easy money to the public, creating a boom period. But in 1929, these loans were called in, artificially reducing the money supply and forcing people into bankruptcy. However, members of the elite were able to get out of the stock market before the crash thanks to an insider tip from Paul Warburg, who served as both chairman of the CFR and advisor to the Federal Reserve. By 1930, the fallout of the Great Depression had begun to spread worldwide, resulting in the bankruptcy of numerous countries, including the United States. In 1933, the 20-year extension of the national debt, which was extended by Woodrow Wilson in exchange for signing the Federal Reserve Act, was now coming due. With little hope this debt could ever be repaid, the United States now faced another looming bankruptcy. Concerned that the dollar would be devalued, Americans began redeeming their Federal Reserve notes for gold and silver. One of the first things the newly elected President Franklin Roosevelt did while in office was to stop the gold redemptions by declaring the Corporation of the United States bankrupt. This occurred on March 9, 1933, with the passage of the Emergency Banking Act, which closed all U.S. banks for four days in order to reorganize the insolvent monetary system. The bank holiday, while resulting in many cases in great inconvenience, is affording us the opportunity to supply the currency necessary to meet the situation. Let me make it clear that the banks will take care of all needs. On April 5, 1933, President Roosevelt signed into law the Gold Confiscation Act, which allowed the federal government to confiscate all the people's gold the United States must take firmly in its own hands the control of the gold value of our dollar. 
The Gold Confiscation Act allowed the federal government to confiscate all the people's gold and to remove the gold standard, replacing all currency with legal tender Federal Reserve notes which could still be redeemed with silver. But in 1968, silver was also removed from circulation, and later, in 1971, the gold window set up at the Bretton Woods Agreement would also be closed. Under the Bretton Woods Agreement, the IMF mandated that the price of gold would be set at a value of $42.22 per ounce of gold. During this time, only foreigners could redeem the United States dollar for gold. But by August 1971, inflation had sent the market price of gold well above the set level, resulting in massive redemptions of gold by foreign creditors who exchanged their devalued dollar for the more valuable gold stored within the United States IMF Trust Fund. I, Richard Billhouse Nixon, do solemnly swear that you will faithfully execute the office. That I will faithfully execute the office. After President Nixon illegally removed the convertibility of gold and silver from the dollar, Federal Reserve notes have since devalued 81%. After President Roosevelt confiscated the people's gold, he changed the provision within the 1917 Trading with the Enemy Act, which redefined all U.S. citizens as enemies of the state. Thus, the corporate government declared war on its own people. This gave FDR the power to indefinitely maintain a bank holiday, preventing any more redemption of Federal Reserve notes for gold and silver. And even worse, every president since the Roosevelt administration has continued to use the Tradings with the Enemy Act to maintain states of national emergency. Therefore, new conflicts are encouraged to maintain control over the people. This gave President Truman a precedent to sign the National Security Act of 1947, which created a national security state with the establishment of the CIA and NSA. In our courts, we want a government of laws and not of men. In 1935, President Roosevelt signed the Federal Register Act, which gave the President dictatorial powers by allowing him to create any law without consulting Congress by simply publishing them in the Federal Registry. By 1938, the Supreme Court had ratified Roosevelt's emergency banking proclamations, which changed the Constitutional Republic into a legislative democracy. Public law was replaced with public policy, and merchant law with admiralty law suspending the Constitution. Legislative language was used which said, only the President can declare an end to the emergency, but once in office and made aware of their dictatorial powers. No President since FDR has been willing to declare an end to the emergency and return our country to constitutional law. When the industrial era began, it broke the connection between kinship and trust. And it started treating people as commodities. And then we lost sight of our government and we allowed the corporations to buy the government. The United States of America no longer represents we the people. The U.S. Constitution allows for three types of laws. Common law, such as we the people, contract law, governing contracts and agreements, and admiralty law, which governs naval forces on the high seas using military tribunals instead of the Constitution and Bill of Rights. Only in times of war can the President expand admiralty law within the interior of the United States. This occurred on December 16, 1950, at the beginning of the Korean War, when President Truman declared a national emergency, which continues to this day. 
At that point, gold fringe flags of the commander-in-chief began to creep up within the courts, public places, and even churches. Because of the 1933 bankruptcy, the government could no longer receive any more loans from the bankers to continue its operations, so they created an ingenious plan. They would borrow against the labor of all 14th Amendment citizens. They did this by creating a foreign situs trust, using your incorporated name and birth certificate as collateral for new loans. Your birth certificate is not owned by you. The original is kept by the government, which proceeds to issue a copy of live birth only. Since the government owns your birth certificate, you are considered an employee of the Corporation of the United States. After the state receives your birth certificate, it is then registered within the U.S. Department of Transportation, who then has the U.S. Treasury issue a bond using your future labor as collateral, which guarantees the Federal Reserve System repayment of the national debt. It is these bonds which allow the government to continue borrowing unlimited money under its full faith and credit scheme. The government then subjected each person to a proportion of the national debt, which today runs around $1 million per American. This money was then deposited into each person's prepaid birth certificate bond, which the bankers fractionally lent upon, manifesting another $9 million out of thin air. This process would then repeat itself to infinity, bringing in a minimum of $10 million to hundreds of millions of dollars or more, depending on how much money the government thinks you will make over your lifetime. But there is one small snag in all this. In order for the government to write checks from your prepaid account, they have to receive permission from you. This occurs when you voluntarily sign a Social Security SS-5 form. This Social Security measure gives at least some protection to 30 millions of our citizens who will reap direct benefits through unemployment compensation, through old age pensions, and through increased services for the protection of children and the prevention of ill health. To persuade people to sign this form, the government will dangle insurance and retirement benefits in your face, but fail to inform you of what you are giving up, or rather, what you will become. By receiving Social Security retirement benefits, you are now considered a federal personnel of the government of the United States, which makes you ineligible to challenge the bankruptcy of the United States. And you are no longer considered a state citizen, but a 14th Amendment citizen, subjecting you to the repayment of the national debt. Accessing and using these funds is beyond the scope of this documentary. However, if you'd like to locate your prepaid account number, then look for the money through your birth certificate, or within your IRS individual master file, or the red-colored Q-SIP serial number located on the backside of all recently issued Social Security cards. This will look different than your Social Security number, as it contains one letter and eight numbers. The first letter designates which one of the 12 Federal Reserve Banks that is recording your bond within its commercial book entry system, and the eight-digit number is your account number, which is traded as a stock certificate in either Switzerland or Puerto Rico. After the bankruptcy of the Corporation of the United States in 1933, its assets were placed under the control of the Secretary of Treasury as its appointed receiver. And then in 1944, the corporation's assets were quick-claimed under the control of the newly created International Monetary Fund. The IMF, along with the World Bank and GATT, were all created in 1944 during the Bretton Woods Agreement. Their policies have allowed the bankers to capture within the United States all its gold, national parks, nonprofit corporations, 
all property of 14th Amendment citizens, and even the birth certificate bonds. These assets are now managed by the governor of the IMF, who just so happens to be the Secretary of Treasury and a paid employee of the IMF. Today, the IMF holds a 51% ownership over the corporate government, Interpol, and even the Office of Personal Management, which is responsible for sending paychecks to all federal employees. Not only has the IMF gained control over the land and the people of the United States, they managed to steal all its monetary gold under a system of institutionalized inflation created by the Bretton Woods Agreement, which dictated that U.S. tax dollars would finance the construction of factories in foreign lands to compete with American jobs. When this money was being sent overseas, the United States gold reserve shrank from 80% of the world's gold in 1946 to 22% by 1971. This gold ultimately made its way into the bankers' personal coffers in mainland Europe. By the 1960s, state governors were becoming concerned of the IMF takeover of the American economy and with the legality of privately issued Federal Reserve notes, which had been declared as unlawful money within their own national and state constitutions. So in 1962, at the National Governors Conference in Lexington, Kentucky, state governors met with IMF leaders to discuss solutions to help mitigate the constitutional crisis at hand. They agreed the best approach was to reincorporate all states under the same jurisdiction of the IMF and to do away with constitutional law and replace it with the tenets of the Uniform Commercial Code and the Code of Federal Regulations, which can only be enforced in administrative tribunals and admiralty law courts. This gave them even more control over the people, because instead of the masses governing themselves within the limits of the law like the Constitution dictates, they would now govern the people under a strict set of codes, which can be used for corruption. By 1972, all the states had incorporated these guidelines, and ever since, the people lost all constitutional protections. With the help of the Bank of International Settlements, the IMF, and the World Bank, the international bankers had exported the American slave grid to the entire world. In 1945, the United Nations Organization was established in the heart of the British Colony's financial district of New York City. Not only had the Crown of England recaptured her colony, she now had full control over the world's financial system. The corruption of the banks and the federal government had become so pervasive, they truly believed themselves to be above the law. In 1963, the CIA murdered John F. Kennedy for attempting to print gold and silver back certificates and for setting up a gold-backed international reserve currency. Government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. President Reagan was well aware of what was going on when he was quoted as saying in a 1982 Grace Commission report, none of the federal income tax paid by the American people is ever deposited into the United States Treasury, but instead is deposited into the Federal Reserve Bank for its use and benefit. When President Reagan was elected, one of the first things that he did was appoint a blue ribbon panel of, of business people headed by Peter Grace and is commonly referred to as the Grace Commission and they their job was to research uh, all the various areas of the federal government and make a report. One of the quotes from the Grace Commission is 100 percent of what is collected is absorbed solely by interest on the federal debt. All individual income tax revenues are gone before one nickel is spent on the services taxpayers expect from government. I believe that in both spirit and substance our tax system has come to be un-American. Death and taxes may be inevitable, 
but unjust taxes are not. In 1981, Reagan attempted to place the United States on a gold banking system, but before he could, he was assassinated by John Hinckley, whose family incidentally worked closely together in the oil business with George Bush Sr. After his death, Reagan was replaced with a clone, which continued to serve out the presidency without the public's knowledge. Over the passing years, the Federal Reserve System continued to bury the people with debt. The United States was transformed from a constitutional republic to a debtor's nation, and then to its current form of a legislative democracy controlled by a fascist government, and they did so by transferring all the assets and future assets of the people into the hands of the international bankers. Who's right? Who's right? He's right. Right on radio. Right on radio.